and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, to praise, and to demand constructive political dialogue. So much to do. Yes. <laughs> Today. It's, a, it's quite the attempt, as we say. I mean, we don't say we succeed. It's an attempt. <laughs> it's an attempt. It's an attempt. Today We've is... been attempting 193 <laughs> times, and maybe one day we will, we will actually find praise and demand constructive dialogue. Perhaps. Today is Sunday, October 25th, 2020. 2020. And there is only one more Sunday left after today before the election. I know. What are we going to do? Sleep. (laughs) I don't think so. I think think it's going to get even more crazy because we're not going to know who wins and uh, well we'll see we'll see so today on polylog we'll be discussing quite a bit about the election and how the new covid spikes are also playing a role in these last few days of campaigning what we won't be talking about is the debate that we had a special episode on because hardly anyone mentioned no one said a word yeah not even like hey chris and wonker you're a badass i know that was that was rude yeah Particularly from Chuck Todd. From NBC News? Yeah. Yeah. Who at one point said, nothing of consequence happened in the debate. The debate (laughs) changes nothing. I mean, I'm, okay. I'm sure they praised her throughout the week, but it's Sunday. Give her a high five. Yeah. That was rude. That was rude. (laughs) Kristen Walker, you did awesome. So we already discussed that in the last episode. But as always, to start us off, highlight low light, starting low, going high. Naomi, what is the low light this week? What's your low light even? So my low light is something that was missing on Face the Nation. Margaret Brennan interviewed Asa Hutchinson. He is the Republican governor of Arkansas. He's also the vice chair of the National Governors Association. He's the top gov- Republican governor because I guess there's more Democratic governors right now. But we were quite surprised that Margaret Brennan did not ask a single question to Governor Hutchinson about state and local funding in the latest round of the COVID relief package. Right, exactly, because the Republicans in the Senate are saying, oh, the Democrats, they keep trying to bail out Democrat states with this COVID relief and bill. And Nancy Pelosi's fighting really hard for it. And, and the argument is that all states across the union, red states and blue states and purple states like Texas and many others, all of them need COVID relief. They They're need all struggling with their relief. state budgets. Right. And it would have been quite helpful if Margaret Brennan had asked Governor Hutchinson about this, but there was not a single question about the COVID relief bill or specifically this component of state and local funding. Yeah. So that was that was a huge it's just a huge miss. miss. Huge miss. It was a strange miss for Margaret Brennan, I think, more more so than anything. Yeah, absolutely. It seemed like something to be up her alley. Brendan, what's your low light? So my low light was also something that wasn't really talked about in depth. And that is kind of the top breaking story yesterday, Saturday, was that we learned Vice President Mike Pence's senior advisors, as many as five surrounding him, including his chief of staff, tested positive for COVID-19. 
And this is very, very important because the vice, first of all, it's a second breach of the White House that's supposed to be a really safe place and doesn't appear to be a very safe place. But the other reason it's concerning beyond the fact that maybe the vice president might have it is that even though the vice president heads up the coronavirus task force officially is the head of it, he is not following his own guidelines because those guidelines state you should be quarantined for 14 days if you had contact with a known COVID-19 positive person. Instead of that, the vice president is out campaigning, but nobody really brought this to attention. There were no questions surrounding it, even though in the interviews on in, Fox in News, any Sunday. of the interviews on Fox News, there was just a very, 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 very brief, one might say, short mention of it in the opening. And Chris, we've learned that Vice President Mike Pence's chief of staff, Mark Short, tested positive for coronavirus. Despite being in close contact with Mr. Short, the vice president is maintaining a rigorous schedule and will travel. He has a rally tonight in North Carolina. Chris. David Spun traveling with the president in New Hampshire. David, thank you. Well, that seems like a very thorough conversation and explanation and discussion about a very deadly virus in the White House again. Naomi, what was your highlight this week? My highlight is something that I heard on the panel on this week. Martha Raddatz was hosting this week. I thought it was a stellar episode. And like we've noted before, whenever Martha hosts the show, she often has a panel of journalists rather than pundits. She did have kind of like a little mini pundit segment with the Rob and Christy show earlier in the show, but it actually wasn't that bad, I think, because they were kind of separated and they were doing their whole little shtick that they do. And it was actually a decent conversation. But what my specific highlight, it was a moment in this panel of journalists, and it was from Tamala Edwards. She is a morning news anchor at the ABC affiliate in Philadelphia, and she also used to work at the ABC News Washington Bureau. So she kind of knew some of the people from the ABC News team, including Martha Raddatz. And she just had a really, really interesting explanation about, and, and visual as well, I guess I would say, about the states that Biden is attempting to reach voters and the states and voters that are kind of slipping through Donald Trump's fingers. Here in Pennsylvania, especially, those are pretty important issues. They are, but I agree with Rick that I think what it did was solidify. Somebody who was leaning Trump, that oil, oil comment pushed them further in that column. That wine mom, that's what they're calling the suburban mom, who likes climate change, she was pushed more probably for Joe Biden. But look at the ground game in the counties. I call it grasp versus grip. Biden is going to places that should be for Trump, but he thinks they're in his grasp. Cambria, Erie, Westmoreland. We see Trump in some of those places as well. He should have that in his grip. He should be looking to expand. One number that jumped out at me, Northampton County. Went for Trump by four points last time. It's up for Biden by 12. So look at the ground game. And that tells you why Republicans in the state are nervous. That is so well said, Naomi. I mean... Hearing her explain exactly what is happening, she's using these little examples of these towns that, unless you live in the state, you probably never heard of, right? Mm -hmm. Or the counties. But the big picture is what is the strategy? What is actually happening on the table right now? And what we're seeing is that Vice President Biden is playing a very 
offensive game. And Correct. President Trump is playing a very defensive game. And that came out, that comes out in a lot of ways, right? We certainly see that in the spending on ad dollars, the Correct. amount of money that is actually in the war chest of each of these campaigns right now. I think we heard this Sunday, somebody mentioned that over the last few weeks, President Trump has been outspent two to one by the Biden campaign in television ad dollars. Now they're saying that's starting to straighten up because after the debate, there was a lot of money raised for President Trump. However, again, playing a very defensive game. And we saw that also in some of the interviews this week where a lot of the Republican operatives, those who are speaking for the Republican campaign, for example, Ronan McDaniel Romney, they are very much on the defense on so many issues, on the issue of coronavirus, on the issue of the vice president, and their offense is often very, very shaky. You know, it's on very shaky ground. They, they keep trying to push this. First of all, they're either pushing stories about Biden that he himself, you know, says aren't true about his policies, like we heard a lot about the oil uh, comment from the debate, or they are going with this Hunter Biden story that the press even press on Fox News are skeptical of. Yeah, it's all very interesting. And I think the part that I also really appreciated about this comment from Tamala Edwards is that it it gives us a deeper understanding of how 2020 really differs from 2016. There's a lot of people who have kind of like PTSD from 2016 in terms of assumptions of how the election was going to turn out, but they don't have a true understanding in terms of the rationale of the decisions the Biden campaign is making, kind of, for example, Georgia, right? There's some people, some Democrats are, are nervous that Biden's spending time in Georgia, which is what Hillary Clinton did. And what Tamala Edwards here is describing is what's within the grasp is different this time around. So big, big kudos. We really like that moment. Brendan, what's your highlight? So my highlight comes from State of the Union. We saw Speaker Nancy Pelosi on State of the Union, which is kind of newish for her. She's almost exclusively, it seemed, and we mentioned this recently, on this week, the ABC show. So seeing her here on State of the Union was refreshing. And also refreshing were some kind of tougher questions pushed her way as it relates to the possible, hopeful COVID relief bill. And one of the things that we had criticized about her recent interviews on other networks was the fact that they were very much status updates on where the bill was and not so much, hey, you know, you should also be held to account of concerning whether this is going to pass because there's two sides negotiating and you could accept other terms sooner if sooner relief is the most important thing and more important than having perfect relief, right? That's exactly what Jake Tapper did in these questions to Nancy Pelosi. So go ahead and take a listen. And also I found her her answer also rather interesting. So more than 23 million Americans are on unemployment benefits right now, as you know. One study shows the poverty rate is higher now than it's been in the whole pandemic. Three Democratic governors in the Midwest, uh, Whitmer of Michigan, uh, Evers of Wisconsin, and Waltz of Minnesota, three Democratic governors wrote to you, President Trump, and other congressional leaders saying, among other things, quote, We implore you to put differences aside and agree to another much-needed COVID-19 relief bill. In addition, one of your own members, Congressman uh, Max Rose, said this week that the Democratic Party needs to learn to a certain extent how to declare victory and go home. Um, You're getting a lot of messages from Democrats saying this is good enough. We, We need to say yes. 
Welcome to my world, that is not a lot of messages, although I respect each and every one of them. The fact is, if we don't agree to the science to crush the virus, if they did what is in our bill, that science dictates that we do, then if we do that, we can lower the incidence of the virus in certain areas, open schools, open businesses, and the rest. If we don't, we're just giving money to the president to spend any way he wants, and that has not been in furtherance of crushing the virus. So again, in terms of we all want an agreement. Nobody wants it more than the House Democrats. We represent these people. We have been fighting for food for the hungry, uh, uh, right. rent assistance for those who may be evicted. But most importantly, we really have to un stop the spread so, of the virus. And it's, what, nine months later? Yeah, no, and I they get, still I will has, have refused to uh, uh, honor science with the, the solutions. That, and then, of course, we're praying for the, for the uh, so, um, vaccine, and hopefully that will be soon. Yeah. But many more people will die in the meantime. If... So this is the type of questioning we would expect from any host talking to anyone who is actually in these negotiations, you know, pushing them, pressing them on what it is exactly they want from the bill and also what are they willing to take and how flexible are they and also impressing upon them the pressures of the country in need of aid not not just now, but but weeks ago, you know, months ago. So this I found very compelling from Jake Tapper, but also Nancy Pelosi's answer there, because remember, Jake Tapper says you're getting a lot. Let's see, what's exactly the words that he says? You're getting a lot of messages from Democrats saying this is good enough. We need to say yes. And Pelosi responds, quips even, welcome to my world. This is not a lot of messages, although I respect each and every one of them. <laughs> now, <laughs> She could just be trying to spin things and say, oh, no, you know, I'm hearing a lot of other messages saying hold out for what's what's good and what matters. And earlier in the interview, Pelosi says that taking anything less than than what's needed to crush the virus would be offensive. Right. It would be malpractice, political malpractice, malfeasance, I think she says. But this note about, you know, you don't know what a lot of messages is. Welcome to my world reminds me so much, Naomi, of when she had a challenger to be speaker again. Remember, oh, right, Representative yeah. Marsha Fudge was out there challenging her. Wow, I can't believe you remembered the name. Good job. I looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you were, <laughs> I would not have admitted that. <laughs> well, that's, I have to look it up because it was such a blip, right? Because she was challenging Speaker Pelosi to be speaker, challenging Representative Pelosi at that time to be speaker. And then Apparently, Nancy Pelosi was very kind to her, invited her in, showed her what it was like to be speaker, the pressures of being speaker, of being on the phone, of phone banking nonstop all day, all night, going to, you know, flying across the country at all hours of the day and night to go and do fundraising and meet with people and, and keep the job and keep things moving. And Marsha Fudge said, mm, yeah, you know, maybe I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> That's maybe a little much for me. And uh, or or anybody, and uh, Pelosi is just she loves the energy and and she gets I'm sure a lot a lot a lot of messages. I mean, could you imagine what her phone text looks like? I mean, no, holy thank cow. you. Ugh. Well, let's get started on our first segment, Brendan, and that is things that we found most notable across the shows in talking about the election. Absolutely. So right at the top of that list. 
is actually a really insightful discussion that we heard on Meet the Press, a discussion we haven't heard in quite a while. This is from an active sitting Republican member of the House of Representative Representatives who lost his primary. Yeah, so kind of like a lame duck. Yes, Republican he's a, it's very it's a strange situation. He lost his primary and he's a representative from Virginia, represents the Charlottesville area, and he was talking with Chuck Todd about the changing demographics of America, really. Yeah, and just for a little bit of context about Congressman Denver Riggleman, well, one, he's a former intelligence officer, but his district is very interesting. You mentioned that he represents Charlottesville, but it's also a very large district, actually 10,000 square miles, bigger than the state of New Jersey. We kind of have a clear understanding of what that really means. Our county is about the size of New Jersey. And, and you were born in New Jersey and, and, I was and grew up there for a good portion of your right. and childhood. So, so you know New Jersey well. I do know New Jersey well. <laughs> but these huge districts are really challenging politically. And I think so many times when people are talking about politics and what's happening in the party, they kind of gloss over the nuance of what that looks like within a district, especially in a very politically diverse district. And... Congressman Riggleman, he mentions earlier in the interview that that due to kind of the development in Charlottesville and apparently Alma County, that they essentially have a swing district within a blue state because when he won it in 2018, it was up for Republicans by six points. And now it looks like it's the completely it's completely flipped. So just very, very interesting district. And an interesting man, I, I guess I would say as well. But so many times when we're talking about demographics within a party and kind of variations of, of values and sentiments within the party, we don't really kind of look at what that means. We kind of just say it and we don't hear from the people themselves who are feeling it in their districts directly. So here's a couple of moments from the interview with Congressman Riggleman that stood out to us. But I think what you have with the president right now is that when I'm talking to people, they're not really worried about policy. They're just like what President Trump says goes. And right now in this district, that's not working very well. And I think in the state, it's not working very well. But what I've learned, Chuck, right now is I really thought the battlefield of ideas is where it's at. But it's really, you know, gets very, very personal. And I think that's something we got to worry about. A lot of what President Trump has done in this district has been wonderful. But when we start to actually represent as a party that's part of this, you know, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that, you know, believes that there's some kind of uh, pedophilia cabal, you know, on the Democratic side of the House, I think I think we're in for a rough ride. And I just wish we could stick to policy, because if we stick to policy, it's almost yeah. impossible to vote for Joe Biden. But we're not. And I I guess I scratch my head as a former intelligence officer. Chuck is what are we yeah. doing here? Like I said before, I mean, these are people that believe Lord of the Rings is a documentary. And the fact that we're trying to appeal to them is just ridiculous to me. So a little bit of sassiness there at the end. But, you know, it just just seems like he wanted to be a serious conservative congressman. And the GOP is making that really hard slash literally impossible for him. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. You know, it seems like there's two things that he objects to, one being as he mentions here, these conspiracy theories, the QAnon conspiracy theory. But the other side of it is anything Trump says goes, right? Right, yeah. And that level of supreme... Blind loyalty. loyalty, Yeah, to a single person's word is... And uh, someone so 
not even just dysfunctional, even if you're a conservative, so unreliable, so flimsy in values, I guess I would say. Well, and just his his positions just change with the wind. I mean, right, right. Minute by minute, hour by hour, right. I mean, literally, we were just talking. I think it was last last week, about a week ago, where he said, "I don't want any COVID relief bill until after the election." And then, literally hours later, like by that <laughs> evening, it was, "I demand a COVID relief It'll bill be better on my than desk now." What Pelosi is suggesting? Yes. It's like holy. I know these my people must have whiplash. Hope they have good chiropractors. But one thing that he said elsewhere in the interview was that Trump is polling now just at plus three. He won the district by plus six. But that Republican candidate, the one who who won the primary against Denver Riggleman, is is polling at minus three. Right. Yeah. So it's a six point split between where the current Republican candidate is and where Donald Trump is actually polling. And that's still behind where Trump won in 2016. Yeah. So kind of in the weeds, kind of wonky, but if you're trying to understand what's happening within our changing parties, like I think we should be talking to people like this. And I think on the on the flip side, I think if we would have I'm thinking of like 2018 when a bunch of women and, you know, other progressives won a bunch of, you know, purple, formerly red districts, it would have been really cool to hear from from those people then as well. I'm thinking like Katie Porter. I'm thinking of. Lauren Underwood, I'm pretty sure her name is from Illinois. I mean, these are people who are really representing, they're not new communities to people who have been living there for a long time, but changing communities. Yeah, I think this, you know, you kind of touch on three really interesting political stories that we'll, we'll need to be investigating if, if Biden wins, which a lot of the polls are pointing to, pretty much all the polls now are pointing to that. Of course, nothing's guaranteed. But if Biden were to win, I think, I mean, certainly the number one political story is what the heck will Trump do with the loss? But let's say, you know, beginning next year with an inauguration, it's what's Biden going to do? Number two is how does this reshape the Republican Party because of what all this stuff we're talking about? And number three is what happens to these districts, to the country over the long term that is kind of pushing this. And and I think it is worth noting, I mean, Things like the uh, the Lincoln Project and other kind of Republican-led anti-Trump organizations and organizing out there that is organizing directly for Biden now. You know, it gets a lot of play for the press it, it makes and the ads they make and stuff like that. But it really is worth stopping and noting how bizarre it is to have so many Republicans actively campaigning for a Democratic candidate. Yeah, it's it's very strange. I think, I mean... You're a less cynical person than I am. I think some of these people are looking out for their own careers, for sure. But I just think it's really important that we hear from people who have to talk to these voters day in and day out, right? And I think that's what I appreciated most in this interview with Congressman Riggleman, is that so many times the shows are trying to get Speaker Pelosi, are trying to get Schumer, they're trying to get some committee chairman or chairwoman, and Sometimes what is most valuable is hearing from a name that maybe people don't recognize, but can speak to an experience that people are feeling across the country. Absolutely. So just a quick other thing that we wanted to talk about uh, that we noticed and appreciated from Meet the Press was just the rich conversation about the Senate races that we saw in the panel on Meet the Press. And I mean, the Senate races are wild and... Chuck Todd, as he introduces 
this whole conversation around the Senate races really kind of gives a thorough overview as to how things have changed from just a couple months ago. How things have changed from a couple months ago. Earlier in the cycle, we had identified six Republican senators in jeopardy. Steve Daines in Montana, Corey Gardner in Colorado, Martha McSally in Arizona, Joni Ernst in Iowa, Tom Tillis in North Carolina, and Susan Collins in Maine, plus one Democratic incumbent, Doug Jones in Alabama. This is the Senate map we assumed we were going to be dealing with with the last nine days. But look at how this map has expanded. It has added quite a few competitive races. As of right now, you've got Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. Both Republican senators in Georgia are vulnerable. David Perdue, Kelly Loeffler. Dan Sullivan in Alaska is in a tight race. And the open Republican seat in Kansas. Yes, Kansas. All of them are in some measure of peril. And then I'd add Democrat uh, incumbent Gary Peters in Michigan. Finally, on the outside tier, yes, there are more competitive Senate races. John Cornyn in Texas. Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. Look, they're both favored, but they haven't put their opponents away. Same is true for Democrat Tina Smith in Minnesota. So to be sure, Democrats are not, uh, are not going to win all of these races. But it's worth keeping in mind that in a wave year, which this could be for Democrats, close races tend to go all in the same direction. So this discussion was really insightful, but one thing that was kind of missing from the conversation was really understanding of why this matters. Why does it matter to go deep into all these Senate races beyond just, oh, it's interesting, there's some people up for, re- up for election or re-election? Or, I mean, why should a national audience care who the senator is in Alabama? Like, really? Do we, should we care? Who's the senator in North Carolina? What, what is the value of that? Who's the senator in Iowa? Well, the value in that, of course, as, as probably polylog listeners know, beyond who these particular individuals are, is the likelihood of having a Democratic-controlled Senate means a ton when it comes to a Biden presidency. And that simple calculation was completely missing from this conversation. And that is, that is just, you know, it's, it's malpractice for your viewers who might not fully understand. Not making that explicit. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And oh, the, I did feel like 538 during their debate podcast that they held that kind of wandered all over the map in terms of what they were conversing about. <laughs> but the 538 conversation this week on their podcast really did a good job of articulating exactly why that is important. And basically what they said is having a Democratic Senate is the difference between whether Biden has a real presidency of his own where he can set his own agenda and pass real law or if a Biden election is more like a removal of Trump, but not really an opportunity for Biden to to create his own, you know, create Biden care, as he called it. Right. Create the the Biden stimulus and the Biden infrastructure plan and the Biden, you know, Biden to actually do anything, right? I guess that's fair. I mean, I think the panel is kind of assuming people who are watching are kind of aware of that. But I hear what you're saying that it probably should have been made a little bit more explicit and front and center. At least for me, I, I found the whole panel really fascinating. And each panelist kind of went through a different election and kind of made some noteworthy comments about each one of them. And I just wish we would have heard about this like four to six weeks ago. I mean, we're literally nine days before the election. And it could have been so interesting to see some of these changes in these Senate races as they were happening, as opposed to being like, oh, look, look, look where we're at before the election and and what this might mean. So I felt like I didn't, I didn't learn from the elections 
in these different states as they were changing, I'm kind of now at the end. It's like, oh, wow, there's a lot that has changed. Yeah, I agree. This conversation could have come earlier in, in the cycle, but there was there was just so much. There's so much. I know. So much about Trump, about the Trump having coronavirus, right? I mean, if Trump didn't get coronavirus, I bet this conversation would have come earlier on the Sunday shows. Oh, yeah, that's that's 100 percent fair. Yeah, that was that was not expected. Uh, there was one point, as you mentioned, all the panelists mentioned uh, had had different races that they went deep into. But I really appreciated Amy Walter from the Cook Political Report, where she just said outright that Democrats have at least five seats right now where they're currently ahead of Republicans. And as we heard from Chuck Todd earlier, Democrats don't need five seats. They don't even necessarily need four seats. They just need three. It's safer to go with four, though, because Doug Jones is not a guarantee. Yes. But of course, before we get to who won or didn't win the Senate and what that means for a Biden presidency, if Biden wins, we have to know who wins? Just who? Biden or Trump? And that's not necessarily going to be an easy thing to determine this year with so many ballots in the mail, so many ballots to open up and read and determine who voted for who in a number of states. So Nate Silver kind of tackled this about whether Election Day was going to be more like Election Week, even though technically it kind of feels right now like Election Month because people are are voting. Nate went into, when are we going to know what we want to know? You've got the three Sunbelt states, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina, and three Midwestern ones, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Apart from nicer weather, those Sunbelt states have something else in common. They're likely to count their votes fairly quickly. In Florida and Arizona, mail ballots must be received by Election Day. In North Carolina, there's a ton of early voting, and it's expected that as much as 80% of the vote there can be announced shortly after polls close. Biden is approximately a 99% favorite to win the Electoral College if he wins Florida or North Carolina, and 98% if he wins Arizona. But let's say President Trump wins Florida instead, then the election is much closer to a toss-up. Losing Florida means Biden would have only a 58% chance of winning, and in that case, we could be waiting for results for a long time. That's because if Trump secures the Sun Belt, Biden needs to win all three Midwestern states. But Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin are slower to count their ballots, and ballots might be accepted after Election Day as long as they're postmarked by November 3rd. I thought this was actually really interesting in the way it was broken down. I've heard that some states, you know, allow a postmark through Election Day and that some states might take longer than others to kind of know in the end who won that state. But I hadn't really realized how it was broken down in terms of the Sunbelt states versus the Midwestern states and what that really means in terms of someone being called the winner on election night, right? It We still might not know Michigan and Wisconsin next Tuesday, but that might not matter if Trump has Arizona and Florida, right? So it's just kind of very, very interesting to think about what is at stake and if slash when it will matter. Yeah, this is all really insightful, and I super appreciate getting this breakdown, even though it gets a little into the weeds. But really, hearing this as we're talking, Naomi, my sense is, this is ridiculous. Why the hell is our election system so fractured? It's 
just dumb. Like, I understand. I understand why people might say, oh, well, there's there are local elections, right? Like, there are a number of local elections that have nothing to do with the national federal government and let elections offices, you know, be elections offices controlled by those localities. I understand that argument. And I'm fine with let them have control over the running of it. Right. But can we have some standards, please? Let's have some (laughs) standards. Right. Like, it's fine if we have different utilities who provide water, but we've got clean water standards. We need clean ballot standards. You know what I mean? Like, this is ridiculous. Let's have some basics so that we don't have all these crazy rules. I mean, we heard this when we were talking about the CBS, you know, learn how to vote initiative that they put together. Oh, yeah, right. Was, oh, remember how gross Alaska was in terms of their ballot requirements? Right. Some some of these states have requirements where you have to have some other registered voter sign and, that they saw well, you be the one that vote or a notary. Yeah. I mean, that's such a burden on that individuals. That is such a burden. So... Yeah. And then, like the like he said, these rules, and then some of them, like, they, they won't, oh, oh, no, we can't count it before Election Day. Oh, God, no, we can't get ahead of ourselves, even though the ballots are sitting there. Oh, so dumb, so dumb. We need some election standards. So hopefully, hopefully, that is something that people can look into in the future. I thought this was going to be a rant about the Electoral College, Brendan. No. I, I did not see this rants on federal standards so way to take me on a journey (laughs) well representatives from all the states in the federal government in what we call the congress can decide to set national standards i think when we say federal standards people often think oh it's dictated by the federal government right no i'm not i'm not saying that right okay yeah but it needs to happen this is this is just ridiculous well it kind of reminds me (laughs) We saw a TikTok or I showed you a TikTok today about like a mom trying to teach her child sight words, which are like words that you have to know how they're pronounced just by looking at them because the letters don't make sense. Right. I mean, we're a new parents, so we're learning all these new things like the term sight words anyway. But it's like her whole TikTok is just like how stupid the English language is because there's all these like dumb rules that don't make sense that we always break and that like, like the word no why does no have a k in front of it and a w at the end right when it's pronounced just like no like an o no yeah or and, the word two why does two have a w in the middle well there's also t o and then t o o yeah 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 so or any- why does read mean R-E-A-D mean read and also read, R-E-A-D. Yeah, we have But to also give... R-E-D means read. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other one was um, one, right? <laughs> Why does one sound like it has a W in it? Anyway. But there's another one with a W. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, we'll, we'll link the TikTok because it's so good. <laughs> but all this is show is that there's like such superiority of like the English language. Like, I don't know, like the English language is like, idealize as like so amazing and Shakespeare and all this stuff. But like there's all these dumb, dumb rules, like just stupid. And that's kind of how I feel about the American election. Our American (laughs) democracy has these really dumb rules that make no sense. And any immigrant that comes to this country is probably like, why? Why are you guys doing it this way? So I have two things to say about that. Number one, Shakespeare is a great example because there's only, I think there's like five or six known actual signatures with Shakespeare's name where he actually signed his name anywhere. And every time he signed it, he spelled it differently. <laughs> his own name. And, and none of those spellings were the spelling that we use today. Of course. <laughs> so, okay, so that's a fun Shakespeare fact. But your you brother know, will be so proud of you. <laughs> we should have known for a really long time that 
that this this system is b- ridiculous. Wait, are we, we talking should... about the English language yes, or no, elections? Elections. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, look at the butterfly ballot, right? I mean, if our listeners don't know what the butterfly ballot is, probably many of them do, but it was a terribly designed ballot that was extremely confusing. It was like the most confusing ballot anyone could possibly <laughs> design ever. But they did because there's no freaking standards for this stuff. It's, yeah. It's, it's really embarrassing. It's yeah. embarrassing to the rest of the world. <laughs> it's embarrassing to us and the rest of the world looks down on us for yeah. this. If you don't know the butterfly ballot, I highly recommend the You're Wrong About podcast, specifically the 2000 election. And so. by the way, I should note, I have a little bit of bona fides here. I worked you did. in an I elections knew we were gonna office get here. <laughs> in my county and that elections office... <laughs> I, I can tell you lots of things about the election process, but <laughs> oh god, it, it, it's like imagine like Parks and Rec, right? But it's like the most dysfunctional department in Parks and Rec. Yes, <laughs> it really is. However, this is one fact that should disturb everybody: that the, <laughs> the supervisor of elections position was an, an elected <laughs> position, and the supervisor supervised. Her own election. <laughs> it's true. Anne McFall. I think that was her name. Anne McFall. You shouldn't say her name. Well, she was like the supervisor forever. Why shouldn't I say her name? Oh, my God, Brendan. Anyway. I'm not saying she did anything untoward, <laughs> but that doesn't make any sense from a checks and balances pers- perspective. Florida. This, I mean, it's it's Florida. Anyway. All right. We yeah, need to move Butterfly on. Ballad and this is, is Florida we're talking about. I know. Of course. Well, speaking of changes and the world moving forward, there was a very, very interesting thing that was said on this week. There was kind of an ongoing broader discussion about if voters were kind of turned off by the comments made by Vice President Biden in the last debate. Kind of going back to what you mentioned earlier today, Brendan, how Joe Biden mentioned that he was going to be kind of ending the subsidies for the oil and gas industry. Matthew Dowd, an ABC News political analyst, had a really interesting point about how people's attitudes on the oil and gas industry is really different today than it was a decade or so ago. Let me say one thing about oil and gas. I think many people are looking this as an issue that it's like it was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Let me give you a stat. More people work in renewable energy industry in Texas than work in the oil and gas industry in Texas. So I don't think that this is near of a problem that many people think it is for Joe Biden's campaign. The world has changed. It's fundamentally changed on energy, and it's changed in places like Texas, Pennsylvania. More voters are with Joe Biden on this than are opposed to Joe Biden on this. I think sometimes the... Republican Party or maybe how the media talks about the Republican Party acts like there's such a deep loyal to the oil and gas industry, but people's relationship to their own consumption and energy sustainability has drastically, drastically changed. Earlier in this week, there was a kind of little exchange between Rahm Emanuel and Chris Christie, and Rahm Emanuel said something to the effect of, like, my kids are going to drive electric cars. Your kids are going to drive electric cars. Like, this is just where we're going. And it didn't even, like, create a backlash between Chris Christie because it's just the truth. And it's it's something to something to observe how in our own homes, in our own communities, and in the media, we're talking about energy consumption very differently and making sure that it actually reflects reality. 
Yeah, I totally agree, Naomi. This is this is a part of the conversation that should be shifting. And I feel like although we've seen progress, certainly even just over the f- few years of Polylog, the three years of Polylog, <laughs> I shouldn't say it doesn't feel like few, we've seen shifting on conversations like climate change, right? But conversations about energy haven't always shifted. You know, these other areas that are related to climate change and related to renewables and related to the environment, those conversations haven't all advanced because I think that everyone's been stuck in this argument of is climate change real or not? And we finally ended that conversation in the media. But these other parts about these energy sectors and industries or fracking, for example, right? How much kind of misinformation is out there about fracking and its role and its impact on the environment and its impact on, you know, jobs in different in different industries in different states, you know, for example, North Dakota, right? I mean, yeah, holy I mean, it's cow, a huge part of their economy. Yeah. But a lot of that conversation has not been at the forefront. And so we are kind of stuck in an old, old way of talking about things. And I just think about as we talk and, and we hear this fact from Matthew Dowd about how Texas, more people are employed in renewable energy than the gas industry, oil and gas industry. It, it Those just, are great jobs, by yeah, the way. Yeah. It just reminded me of another thing that I saw this week that probably some viewers saw this week was that, or I should say listeners, was that... I know where you're going. Uh-huh. Yeah, General Motors released their vision for the Hummer... The new Hummer. It's called the Hummer EV. So the Hummer, of course, is a... The Humvee was a military vehicle and is a military vehicle. And then GM kind of rebranded it, built it up, a consumer version called the Hummer, which I think is like the Hummer H3 or the Hummer. It came out around the time of George W. Bush, I feel like. Yeah, I think so. And it was kind of this symbol of, I don't give a damn about the environment. I'm going to burn, you know, all this, at least, yeah. you know, all this oil, all this gas, whatever. And this is my big honking Hummer. And it's I awesome. Remember, I remember rented, <laughs> I rented, my girlfriends and I rented a Hummer for a relay race. This is like really taking us back. But we rented a, a Hummer for this, race and it's like a running race and it got like nine miles to the gallon yeah <laughs> yeah it's you know it was like driving an rv yeah except it wasn't an rv like, it, was it was just like your an choice SUV. yeah yeah but now there's an electric version which is totally redefining i think what people think uh, an electric vehicle can be because yeah, totally. for so long it was defined by the Prius, which is this small, and a lot of these little small little smart cars, you know, they, they're like. <laughs> you don't have to say it like that. <laughs> well, some of them are small. Yeah, some of them are really small. Yeah, and it's like if you want to, <laughs> if you want performance, right? Right. You weren't going to an electric vehicle if right. you needed power. Now, of course, Tesla has started to redefine that to give you a sense of luxury and some 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 sort of performance. And they kind of unveiled their their weird Tesla truck thing, Cybertruck, they call it. But I think this Hummer, it looks real. It looks polished. It looks like it's actually going to be a vehicle people can buy soon. And it's getting people excited about electric vehicles and an electric future that doesn't have to have the compromises people have thought they've had to have for a long time. And one of those compromises people are going to realize is that you don't have to compromise on jobs necessarily. Yeah. And I mean, we're kind of going longer on this and I think Matthew Dowd anticipated, but I think it's something to be said. He'll appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. But 
you know, energy trends and consumer norms are so different in different parts of the country. And I think what Matthew Dowd here is is trying to really know is that we shouldn't be one stuck in the past in a place that has been stuck the longest, right? Because if we look at consumer trends in different parts of the country, they're they're not just where Texas is, they're far more advanced in terms of how long they've been investing in renewables or what's the norms in home construction or in infrastructure, right? And so if we can broaden our expectations and our understanding as to how people are making the choices that they are, then it seems like more palatable isn't the word I'm thinking of, but like within reach, right, for states and communities that maybe haven't gotten that far. And I remember when I first moved to California 10 years ago, being blown away the fact that there was an electric charging station at my park down the road and just thinking like, I'm in the future. Like they have electric charging stations. And there was like one at my like local Walgreens. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is insane. Like I can't believe this. I just thought it was so cool. And then it became normal for me. And I was considering buying a, a new car and I was like, maybe I should get an electric vehicle. They're everywhere. Like they're at my, on campus. They're like, I can charge it at work. I can, you know, like it's going to be really easy to keep it charged. And I was talking to a friend of mine who lived in another state and electric vehicles were totally not an option for her because there were so few charging stations. Yeah. And she was just like, she couldn't believe that I was like considering it as a serious option because it was just so not on her radar. And that variation is what is like interesting, right? And it's interesting to think about places and communities, especially around renewable energy, meeting a little bit more in the middle, right? That 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 there isn't quite such a dis discrepancy in terms of how people are making choices. And hopefully, you know, what Matthew Dowd here is talking about is like, we should not be stuck in, you know, Texas from 2002. Like, that's not the world we live in. That's not our only option. Totally. All that said, I do think Biden sort of put his foot in his mouth. I know, it was a stupid thing to say. At the debate, and uh, and probably needs to come out with uh, a much clearer, definitive answer on the topic. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, and we were talking about, it seemed like Republicans were on defense in a lot of different ways, including Rona McDaniel Romney in her interview on Fox News Sunday on a whole number of topics. But there was one topic that she was absolutely on the offense about, and that was related to Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, the whole... Again, it's emails on a laptop. Just go ahead and take a listen to this exchange with Chris Wallace presenting some healthy skepticism to this story that is unconfirmed and unsubstantiated. All right, I want to ask you about another question. I'm going to ask Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, in the next segment about the Hunter Biden email story. But I want to ask you one question. Do you have any proof, because he's denied it, do you have any proof that Joe Biden ever took one penny from either a foreign country or a foreign company? I think that's incumbent upon the press to start investigating. I think what's frightening is uh, we should have a free and fair press that should be looking at a laptop that has not been disputed by the Biden campaign to be authentic. These emails are deeply troubling as it looks like Hunter Biden is negotiating with a Chinese energy company to profit not just for himself but for his father, but it warrants an investigation. That's not my job. That's the press's job. Uh, that's uh, the FBI, those who have this laptop to look into it. But what's amazing, well, the, Chris, I and I know you FBI, agree with me. The FBI why are, have the why hard are, drive. If I may. Yeah, if I'm, but uh, why are 
are these I'm, stories being censored? I don't mean to interrupt, but let me ask you. The FBI yeah. has had the hard drive since December. Why haven't they come up with any evidence? I don't know. Crime? I'm not in the internal aspects of that investigation. But what's even more disturbing, Chris, is Twitter is censoring these stories. The press is saying this has been debunked without even investigating it. Why are they doing that? Why are they covering for this story? So really good for Chris Wallace to push back on this storyline and say, look, do you even have any evidence at all, any proof at all? And of course, she doesn't provide it. She spins up all of these insinuations and possibilities and then accusations against the Biden campaign, against Biden himself, against the press itself, against the FBI even, with no substantiation whatsoever. And it is worth noting and and pointing out and I wish Chris Wallace had pointed it out, that she accuses the press of saying that this story has been debunked without even investigating it. Why are they doing that, she says? Why are they covering for this story? But it's worth pointing out that Rudy Giuliani, who had access to or, or is trying to drum, drum this all up, they did not send this quote-unquote laptop or hard drive to any reputable news organizations, only Republican and right-leaning organizations. And the one that they did send it to, the reputable one, the Wall Street Journal, the news side refused to do anything with it. They investigated it, refused to do anything with it. And, And the other organizations, other news organizations, haven't even had access to it because it wasn't sent or provided to them. So that is that is definitely worth pointing out. Yeah, this whole exchange on Fox News Sunday is an example of our genuine confusion with the journalistic choices that Chris Wallace makes on the show, where there's some interviews where we're just so blown away and just so impressed with his research and his follow ups and just so impressed. And then he'll have this whole line of inquiry that makes very little sense in terms of like if it's substantial, if it's worth his time to even ask about it. It just, it can be such a kind of flip-floppy use of your time that I can understand why sometimes, I guess I would say Democrats don't take Fox News Sunday seriously, which is a shame because Chris Wallace is a really solid interviewer, but sometimes he spends time on topics that literally are a waste of time. Well, speaking of spending time, I don't know if others saw this, but an analysis indicated that in a period of just nine days, Fox News spent over 25 hours covering this Hunter Biden story, this recent allegation that has come forwards, and that when you break that down, it's almost equal or very close to it between Fox's straight news side and its opinion side of coverage. It was covered for 14 hours by the opinion side and by about 11 and a half hours by Fox's straight news side for a total of 420 individual segments discussing these allegations. And by the way, that analysis is from the organization Media Matters. You know what this reminds me of, Naomi? Hmm. The caravan that was moving through Mexico. Remember that? Oh, right. Mm-hmm. During the 2018 midterm election. Which Trump was hyping up as this, you know, danger that they were going to... Cross into the border like an army. Yeah, like there was an army that was going to cross the border. We're going to cross into the United States and they had to be stopped. And there was all this flurry of news about it. And, you know, it reached the Sunday shows. It was, you know, at a fever pitch at some points. 
And then after the election happened, you, you saw and there were analyses done where that, that word caravan just dropped off in the national conversation. It was totally, totally for the election itself. We should note that no, no other show really invited conversation about this. Right. They didn't spend any time on it. Yeah, while Rona McDaniel was looking to the past and demanding everyone else does too on Fox News Sunday, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was on State of the Union trying to encourage people to look ahead at what the future might be and kind of encouraging people to have higher expectations. Take a listen to this exchange with AOC and Jake Tapper on State of the Union. Do you think the Obama presidency was not a progressive presidency? You know, I think uh, President Obama did everything he could with the limitations of uh, of a Republican Senate and frankly, a Republican controlled Congress with much of his term. Um, But, you know, I I think that being said, there were, of course, uh, progressive demands that were or and progressive wishes that weren't exactly met. But that wasn't solely due uh, to President Obama. We desperately wanted even to settle for a public option. Uh, during that time. And it frankly wasn't President Obama's fault that that didn't happen. You know, I do believe that there are certain areas like foreign policy uh, where there was much to be desired. Uh, And I don't believe that, for example, in certain areas like progressive policy, there wasn't necessarily, uh, it wasn't as progressive as perhaps uh, many folks in this country would have liked. But, you know, if we have an opportunity, if we work hard enough to elect folks like Jamie Harrison, to make sure that we protect seats like Gary Peters, and to make sure that we unseat Republicans like Joni Ernst, and we, ha- and we have the unique, frankly, once in a generation opportunity to have the White House, the Senate, and the House uh, majorities democratically controlled, then I believe we have an obligation to the American people to show what a democratic administration can actually accom- yeah. accomplish, and that we can govern, and yeah. that we can truly have leaps in policy that people can feel in their everyday lives that makes voting Democratic worth not just worthwhile, but a a memorable shift Mm -hmm. from just a a flat line of this idea of of bipartisanship, which often just becomes Republican manipulation. I think this is something really fascinating to think about and an interesting thought exercise for Democrats to really consider what they would want from a Biden administration if they have control of the Senate and the House. And that it could feel different. It probably should feel different. And if our expectation is closer to what we experienced with an Obama administration, then what's the point of having so much power, right? And so it's it's definitely something kind of had me thinking about Biden, you know, harkens back so much to the Obama administration because there is such an affinity for President Obama. But his situation looks like it might be very, very different. And he kind of really has to make the case that that's worth fighting for. Yeah, you know, this really reminds me about a lot of the conversations I've been hearing around Ezra Klein and his book about polarization, where he discusses the fact that political polarization and the fact that oftentimes, well, actually every time we elect a president on a different cycle than we elect the House, then we elect the Senate majority. So it's not possible for one, for the country at one time to say, we now are ready 
for Democrats to be in charge, or we now are ready for Republicans to be in charge. We want something different, right? I mean, often people will go to the polls with that in mind, but because not all of the senators are up at the same time as, as everyone else, that doesn't always happen. And as a result, you don't have the possibility for the Democrats, when they take the White House, to truly present actual legislation, get it actually passed, and then for people to be able to decide when they're at the polls next time, not just did I like what the Democrat said, or did I like what the Republican said in their speech, or you know, the fact that they sent these tweets that I appreciated or that I hated or whatever, you could actually make your decision based on policies that had changed your life, that had made an impact on your life and your time in a positive way, right? And that's what AOC is talking about here, that to give people a chance to vote, not just because they like the person's personality or they like the way the person talks in a debate, but they actually like the policies that have impacted their lives because they were put in power, right? And that's a really, really nuanced and important point. But it also reinforces my frustration with people who criticize Americans for paying too much attention to style and nuance or personality and not enough attention to policy. Well, our system makes it hard for policy to be enacted. For big pieces of legislation that change our lives or move us forwards or take us out of the stone age of butterfly ballots, right? <laughs> um, it's, it makes it hard, our system, for those changes to happen. And so sometimes all you really have to go on is the personality or statements and not necessarily the actual actions of people. So yeah, I, I, I think this is a really important point by AOC. No matter what side of the aisle you're on, I think the broader point of looking forward to an administration that could have a meaningful enough impact for people to decide one way or another whether they like it or they don't on the merits and not just on the intentions. 100%. Okay, Naomi, but we've been talking for a bit and we haven't talked about the newsiest item on the Sunday shows, which was what we heard in conversation about the coronavirus. And of course, we will get to that. But first, we want to set the scene on the issue of the coronavirus. We have cases rising across the country again, both Friday and Saturday, were the highest case increases, new new cases for coronavirus in the nation ever. And this is extremely, extremely concerning. So depressing. Very depressing. But, but I feel like it's not breaking through the political conversation. It's not poking and prodding people to act it's not freaking necessarily. People out. And it's not freaking people out. And I feel like the only voice I heard that really did a good job of explaining why that might be the case was Scott Gottlieb, of course. Of course, of course. On Face the Nation. Take a Of listen. course. We know what it looks like from the summer. These cases are going to continue to build. There's really no backstop here. I don't see forceful policy intervention happening anytime soon. Um, we have a moment of opportunity right now to take some forceful steps to try to abate the spread that's underway. But if we don't do that, if we miss this window, this is going to continue to accelerate and it's going to be more difficult to get un under control. Now, in, in a lot of parts of the country, it doesn't feel really, really bad right now 
because it's a little bad everywhere. Um, we don't have regions where it's extremely dense in any one region like we did when it was epidemic in New York or epidemic in the South. Outside of states like Wisconsin or Iowa, most states just have a lot of spread, but most states aren't at the point where they're extremely pressed right now. That's going to change over the next two to three weeks. I think things are going to look much more difficult. And so we need to take some steps right now. There is no public support for shutdowns uh, right. nationally like we did in the spring. That's not going to happen. So we need to reach for other measures. I mean, of course, we're not surprised that Scott Gottlieb is making some really important comments here about COVID-19. But I think it's challenging us to think about, like, why and when do we respond to this medical crisis, right? And helping us understand that even if it doesn't look or feel dire, it still is. Like, the numbers still paint a picture that we should be highly concerned about. And it's important for us to kind of challenge our assumptions when we're not seeing that reflected in the news we consume or in kind of the state of COVID in our mind. It is interesting. He he mentions at the end here about the national mandate. You know, there's not going to be a national shutdown, right? Right. And yet the problem he's describing is a national one because it's happening across all these different regions not in a dire, not a, like it's a really bad thing when you add it all up, right? But in, in any one place, in most of those places, it's not yet at that really dangerous level. And so that kind of like calls out for kind of some national consciousness and recognition and action, right, to, to slow the spread. And it sounds like, it just seems like he's sitting here and watching the train approach and seeing that nobody is awake at the at the wheel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. Well, speaking of nobody awake at the wheel, that takes us to the interview on State of the <laughs> Union with Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. This interview made a lot of news because he admitted that this is a virus out of control that is outside their grasp. This is the most consequential interview we saw on any of the shows today and for good for good reason. Take a listen to that newsy moment in context. And so, Jake, when we start to look at this, you know, here's here's where we really need to make sure. On your website yesterday, Jake, yeah. you know, your website is talking about, well, now we think the spread is coming from small social groups and family groups. First, it was large groups. Now it's small groups. It's now coming this from is, all now, sorts now, of places. Now, now, well, it's that's coming from exactly, all sorts of places that's because exactly the pandemic's the out of control. So, so here's what we have to do. We're not going to control the pandemic. We are going to control the fact that we get uh, vaccines, therapeutics, and other mitigation. Why aren't we going to get control the because, pandemic? Be, because it is a contagious virus, just like the flu. Yeah, but why not make contag- efforts to contain it? Well, we are making efforts to contain it. By and, running and all over the country, not wearing a mask? Jake, that's what the vice president is doing. We can get doing. into the back, back and forth. I just want to note from an audio perspective, as I look at those audio levels, they definitely went up at the end there. <laughs> just, just an observation. So in addition to the chief of staff to President Trump admitting that they're not going to control the virus, there was another moment in the interview that stood out to us, and it was when Jake Tapper questions why Americans should take the CDC guidelines seriously when it seems as if the White House isn't. So that the American so people America, the American know. people should abide by CDC guidelines, but you are not even asking your supporters to wear masks, we, we even have, though we pass them out, Jake. I mean, have do you, you know how many to, people have in Minnesota have, have gotten the have, virus because have you, of Trump have you, rallies? Have you been to a rally? You come on with us to a rally and we'll it will show you. We, we give out masks. We have a number of people. They don't wear them. Wear, well, it's a free society. You're not wearing one right now, Jay. There's literally nobody in this room. 
There is literally not yeah, one person so, in the studio. So you're saying that you always wear a mask wherever you go. Come on, Jake. The American people know that's not true. I know it's not true. I and, wear a and, mask and, it, when, except when I'm in here, in my office, and home. That is true. A hundred percent. But I wear what, a mask when uh, I walk in the hallway at CNN. Okay. But, but under, under your article just yesterday, you're suggesting that Thanksgiving is going to be a super spreader event. I don't event. even know what article you're talking about. Yeah, well, it's on the CN, CN, uh, CNN uh, just, website. They can go let me ask you a question. Yeah. Mark Meadows acts like CNN.com is Jake Tapper's personal blog <laughs> that he, he personally writes. He doesn't have hundreds of staffers working on <laughs> But yeah, this is these are very consequential exchanges with the chief of staff of the White House. But there's a few things I want to comment on here. Outstanding line of questioning from Jake Tapper. Jake Tapper is completely engaged in the conversation. This is not a checklist style interview, right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But the thing that Meadows says here that made all the headlines where he said, quote, we're not going to control the pandemic. He says it very proudly. We're not going to control the pandemic. When, of course, other countries have controlled the pandemic way, way, way more successfully than the U.S. Maybe one reason the U.S. hasn't controlled it is that the people in charge aren't even trying to control the pandemic, at least at this point. But even though this made lots of headlines, we have been talking about this here on Polylog for a while. That we have seen members of this administration come on the shows and insinuate that vaccines and therapeutics are what they're looking towards. And that they, they kind of have given up on this idea. A number of, of the people on the, on the Sunday shows from the administration have given up on masks or other measures, social distancing, possible shutdowns. They've kind of given up on a lot of those measures, right? And I remember us underscoring this weeks, if not months ago, that, that it was like, wow, have people, are they really saying it's only vaccines or therapeutics that they're looking towards? And here, sure enough, Mark Meadows is saying that is kind of the official direction that they're that they're working towards. What is clear to me is that for the White House, they don't see themselves as kind of an aspirational leader that whether they like it or not, people are going to look up to for norms and values and safety. And that if the administration was saying, we can do this, we're going to work on it, we're we're going to do what we can, even if it's really, really hard. Indirectly, a lot of Americans would feel that way. I'm going to work on this. I'm going to try really hard, even if it's scary, even if it's dangerous. I'm going to do my part. And this kind of like throwing your hands in the air is not really awe-inspiring to do the hard work in your own life, right? And I think that's, I mean, beyond the kind of moral responsibility for them to do their job to control this at a federal level, I think what is just truly depressing is realizing that other people will hear this and say, if the White House can't even figure it out within their own ranks and like want to be proactive on it, then there's nothing I can do. And there's kind of like a sheer acceptance of it all. Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, people look up to their leadership. That's 100%. Right. And, and they assume that they know and they understand better than the general public. They have better access to information and data and scientists and what's on the horizon. And so why shouldn't you follow their lead? Why shouldn't you do what they're what they're suggesting? The other point I wanted to underscore here is the, the exchange that we heard, the second clip, where Mark Meadows kind of berates Jake Tapper and accuses him and says, look, you're not wearing a mask now. And, and then when Jake Tapper says there's literally nobody in this room, 
Listen to the words that, that, that Meadows says. He says, quote, Come on, Jake. The American people know that's not true. You're saying you always wear a mask wherever you go? I know it's not true. And Tapper answers, actually, it is true, right? But I think this is a really insightful exchange. Because first of all, it indicates that, well, someone who talks like that is not wearing a mask, right? Meadows is not wearing a mask everywhere he goes, surely. And it also suggests that Meadows believes that masks and mask wearing is all virtue signaling. And he just can't believe that anyone is following the rules, is truly following the rules. But some people do. Some people take this seriously. Some people believe the science on this. Some people ex- some people want to believe the rule makers. <laughs> right, right. And I just think this is a very, very revealing, revealing exchange. Because then it's no longer, if there ever was any doubt, any mystery as to why or how members of the White House keep getting COVID-19. That's definitely, definitely accurate. So the last thing we wanted to just quickly discuss was a very powerful exchange that we saw on Face the Nation. Margaret Brennan interviewed Robert O'Brien. He's the national security advisor for President Trump. And he was trying to explain why Vice President Pence was still campaigning. And Margaret Brennan just did not buy it. Uh, Once again, uh, the virus has put some of the very top levels of our government at risk. This time, the vice president, we've learned, has had close contact with COVID-positive staffers, yet the White House says he's still going to travel. Uh, He's being classified as an essential worker. How is campaigning essential work? Well, free elections are the foundation of our democracy, so I think campaigning and voting are are about the most essential thing we can be doing. Couldn't he do it virtually uh, to be safer? Well, I think I think he's taken all the precautions, and my understanding is he's tested negative, as is, as has the second lady. Uh, I did speak with Mark Short today, who tested positive, the, the vice president's chief of staff, and I know he's been a frequent guest on your show. Uh, he's doing well. The symptoms are mild so far, and I wished him, and I, I know you and everyone else does, uh, a speedy recovery from this virus. We certainly do. Um, but these climbing numbers around the country and the news that, once again, the White House is a hot spot is, is deeply concerning. So Margaret Brennan, there is extremely skeptical of the fact that Mike Pence is considered an essential worker. And essential workers, for the most part, to everyone's understanding, has been certain government employees, certain government activities, I should say. Healthcare workers. Healthcare workers, grocery stores, farm workers, public safety workers, people who are keeping the bare minimum of our society functioning. And, you know, I think it's interesting this, the, the, the kind of follow-up where Security Advisor O'Brien says, you know, democracy is vital to our society and and is important as well. And Margaret Brennan doesn't kind of dispute that. She just says virtual would be safer, right? She's saying you can do that activity in a safer way. And I think that's a really important distinction because everyone acts like it's all or nothing and it's not. Like you just have to be safe for the people around you. Exactly. This is about the safety of the people around the vice president. Correct. I think it's almost like the White House and people like NSA O'Brien who represent the White House, don't even get that, right? Because a a very clear answer could be, 
look, the reason those rules are in place is to reduce the chance of spreading it to anybody else, but we are taking extra precautions around Vice President Pence while he's campaigning, such as X, Y, Z. And that could have been a better answer, right? Because it recognizes that this is what this is all about and why these rules are even in place, which they should know because they wrote the rules, right? This administration wrote the rules. But there's just this like, well, you know, it's essential work, period. That's it. Done. Now, from what I have seen, despite what we heard in this interview, which, by the way, this is a great line of questioning from Margaret Margaret Brennan, Vice President Pence previously, while he was campaigning, was seen frequently without a mask, including on the tarmac. And today, while he's been out campaigning, has been seen with a mask, at least on the tarmac, getting on and off his plane and not even stopping to wave at press, just getting right on and off and, and that sort of thing. So it looks like some changes are being made. He is taking things more cautiously or, the, or their office is, but they just weren't really prepared to announce anything of that sort on the Sunday shows. 100% super interesting. And I just kudos to Margaret Brennan for asking this to O'Brien. I don't remember another moment where this went, this line of inquiry went as far as it did, like we see on Face the Nation here. Absolutely. So that takes us to show rankings, Brendan. Lots discussed today. We kind of went the full gamut from your career in the... It was not a career. I know that. I'm exaggerating and <laughs> In the elections office. In the elections office in Florida to my almost electric car vehicle to COVID-19, all the things. All the things. And so I think I'd rank them. Um, your electric car is number one. <laughs> the elections office is definitely last. Last, last. And uh, what else did we talk about? <laughs> no, but seriously, seriously. Number one, I think, has got to be State of the Union. I mean, beyond the fact that the interview with Mark Meadows was extremely newsy and very well conducted by Jake Tapper. That Pelosi interview was also solid. Yeah, it was a solid interview with Pelosi, and he had AOC on. And it was like... A better interview than most AOC interviews. Yes. Usually there's like, what do you think about Biden versus Bernie? And, you know, they, the Republicans hate you. What are you going to do? And this one was actually pretty thought provoking and looked to the future a lot of the party. Yeah. So clear number one there with State of the Union. I think clear number five with Fox News Sunday this week. Yes. I think probably this this week would be number two. Yeah, I could see this week as number two. I thought Martha Raddatz did a really good job and made some excellent choices in terms of how she spent her time. And of course, she was from the road because Martha loves doing the show from the road. And then I'd say probably, I, I kind of want to give Face the Nation number three. And then Meet the Press? Yeah. They're, feel- kind of, they're very close in my mind. Yeah, but Face the Nation, I just, I don't know. Scott Gottlieb. He can sing his tune, and he just does a great job. He can save the whole show for me. But we just highlighted Margaret Brennan did a good job with the O'Brien interview. Yeah, and I guess the other thing I would say around Meet the Press, there was just really interesting data around the Senate races and that interview with Congressman, I think it was Riggleman, right? I really appreciated that one. But I could live with three Face the Nation, four Meet the Press. Well, and Margaret Brennan did an awesome job interviewing the mayor of Kansas City. Super, super important. She kind of dropped the ball with Governor Hutchinson, though. That's true. That's true. But overall, more highlights than lowlights. Yeah. So just to recap, that's one State of the Union, 
two this week, three Face the Nation, four Meet the Press, and five Fox News Sunday. And for our dialogue challenge this week is not to go over your recording time. Yeah, and talk to somebody (laughs) and see if they have a plan to vote. That's the name of the game, people. We're in a pandemic. Make sure your people, your loved ones, your cleaning lady, your gardener, your babysitter, your everyone has made a plan to vote and vote. Yes. And the reason why it's important to talk about making a plan is that when you ask people to make a concrete plan to discuss ways to make a plan to vote, they are way more likely to vote than just having a conversation. And that was on one of the shows today. They talked about that. I don't know which one. Yeah, but I thought that was a really insightful, insightful. Well, and I've seen the language really change this election season. And I just thought that was like smart marketing. But apparently it's based in based in data and based in science in that asking people if they're registered to vote is not enough. Well, smart marketing should be based in data and science. Oh my gosh, we have to go. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I know who I'm going to send that clip to. (laughs) Our friend in (laughs) consumer research. (laughs) Yes. So if you would like to reach us, you can reach us at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow me on Twitter at bstyle. You can follow the show at PolyLogCast, and you can follow me at Naomi underscore. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk with you next week, the final... Final Sunday. ...before the election. The official, I guess, election night, we should call it. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye.